You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 224 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, last week we looked at the 12-mile running fight between the Federals and Confederates at Cane Hill, which took place on November 28, 1862, and we talked about how it set the stage for the Battle of Prairie Grove. Yep. I remember after driving off the foraging rebel cavalry commanded by John S. Marmaduke, Union General James Blunt decided to make Cane Hill in the rural countryside of northwest Arkansas the new base of operations for his Kansas division. But that meant he was barely 35 miles north of the Confederate encampments along the Arkansas River. By contrast, Blunt's only possible support Brigadier General Francis Heron's two Missouri divisions were over 100 miles to the north at Springfield in southern Missouri. So you see the danger, of course. Blunt was now much closer to the Confederates than he was to any possible help from fellow Federals. To complicate matters, not only was the Union Army of the Frontier divided, but it was effectively leaderless. Its commander, John Schofield, was sidelined by illness, as was James Totten, who led one of the two Missouri divisions. That left Heron in charge of the Missouri divisions and Blunt in nominal command of the Army of the Frontier. But for all practical purposes, Blunt's control was limited to his isolated Kansas division. Actually, Blunt and Heron both assumed that in the near future, Major General Samuel Curtis, the department commander, would order one or both Missouri divisions to cross the Mississippi River and join Ulysses S. Grant's command. So neither Blunt nor Heron attempted to stay in touch, much less plan for contingencies. Meanwhile, throughout November, Confederate General Thomas Heinemann had been working to prepare his command for another offensive. As y'all recall, the rebels had struck up into southern Missouri in September, but then in the face of growing federal numbers, they had fallen back into Arkansas, ending up south of the Boston Mountains. Despite that setback, though, the combative Heinemann wasn't ready to go into winter quarters. And, as Tracy said just a moment ago, Throughout November, he had been readying his command for another offensive movement. And by the end of November, Hindman's army consisted of about 12,000 soldiers who were armed, equipped, and ready for service in the field. 
The Trans-Mississippi Army was made up of three divisions, a small cavalry division led by Marmaduke and two large infantry divisions commanded by Brigadier Generals Francis Shoup and Daniel Frost. Marmaduke, who was smarting from his defeat at Cane Hill, was the first to realize that Blunt had placed himself in a precarious position and that Heinemann had been presented with a golden opportunity to reverse the course of the war in the Trans-Mississippi. That's because if the Confederates acted quickly, they could overwhelm the isolated Kansas division at Cane Hill and then press on to even greater things once they had seized the initiative with that victory. And so Marmaduke urged Hindman to move against Blunt at once. Marmaduke told Hindman, quote, I am fully convinced that no force is sufficiently near to give him support in case you attack him. The dash of this move will astound and stun the Federals. Hindman needed little convincing. Energized by the possibility of ending 1862 on a winning note, he issued orders putting the Trans-Mississippi Army in motion. Thomas Heinemann quickly drew up a plan to destroy Blunt's isolated and vulnerable Kansas division. The Confederates would march north from their encampments and cross the Boston Mountains on Cove Creek Road. At a junction called Morrow's, the infantry would turn west on Van Buren Road and storm Cane Hill from the south. Meanwhile, the rebel cavalry would continue north on Cove Creek Road and attack the supply depot that Blunt had set up at Ray's Mill, eight miles north of Cane Hill. Hindman was sure that Blunt, driven out of Cane Hill and cut off from his supplies, would have to flee or surrender. The Confederate offensive began on December 1st. The rebels then required two days to cross the Arkansas River, another two days to reach the foot of the Boston Mountains, and two more days to tackle the mountains and come into contact with Blunt's outposts near Morrow's. Heinemann wasn't particularly concerned about the slow pace of his advance, since he reckoned that even if Blunt called for support, the Federal's Missouri divisions couldn't possibly arrive in time. But that, dear listeners, proved to be a major miscalculation. That's because James Blunt was bold, even reckless at times, but he was no fool. He recognized that taking up his advanced position at Cane Hill was somewhat risky, so even though, with fall turning into winter, he didn't expect the rebels to make a major move, he still kept a close watch on their activities down in the Arkansas Valley. And by December 2nd, Blunt had learned enough to conclude that Hindman was moving in his direction. For reasons that had nothing to do with strategy and everything to do with, um, psychology, Blunt chose to stand his ground. And so that evening he sent a courier racing toward the telegraph station at Elkhorn Tavern, 56 miles to the north. The courier carried an urgent message for Heron, quote, I desire you to move as much of your force as possible, especially the infantry, to my support as I do not intend to leave this position without a fight. End quote. That was the first order that Blunt issued as commander of the Army of the Frontier. It was also the most important. 
As the courier dashed away, the Kansas division began to prepare for the fight of its life. Fortunately, the rugged terrain around Cane Hill was well suited for defense. The Federals blocked the roads leading to their position from the east, south, and west. They paid particular attention to the Van Buren Road, which led directly from Morrow's to Cane Hill. The Yankees did not, however, block the road that passed around the east side of Cane Hill. For reasons never explained, Blunt failed to extend his left flank far enough to maintain, or at least contest, control of Cove Creek Road north of Morrow's. This mistake would have serious consequences. Meanwhile, up in Missouri, when Blunt's telegram reached Francis Heron's headquarters at 8 o'clock on the morning of December 3rd, he didn't waste a minute getting his force on the road. Heron sent a reply to Blunt, saying, We'll move both divisions entire at noon today and we'll make good time to your position. The distance from here is so great that it may be necessary for you to fall back a short distance, but I will do my best to make that unnecessary. Heron was as good as his word. The Missouri divisions were on their way within hours. The march that followed was an epic of human endurance and one of the most extraordinary events of the Civil War. Between the afternoon of December 3rd and the morning of December 7th, a period of three and a half days, the 2nd and 3rd Divisions of the Army of the Frontier marched 105 and 120 miles, respectively, across the heart of the Ozark Plateau and went directly into combat at Prairie Grove. The actual distance varied from regiment to regiment, but the Missouri divisions averaged 30 miles a day on primitive roads in bitterly cold weather with only brief halts for food or rest. Lieutenant Joseph Barnes of the 20th Iowa considered the trek was, quote, the greatest march made by any troops during the War of the Rebellion, end quote. And no one in Heron's command would have disagreed. Unfortunately, like so many other remarkable events that occurred west of the Mississippi River during the war, this epic march has never received the attention it deserves. On December 4th, the first full day of marching, the Missouri divisions, after concentrating from their scattered encampments around Springfield, covered only about 20 miles before halting for the night. The next day was longer and far more difficult. After tramping more than 30 miles, the Federals stopped for the night on the old Pea Ridge battlefield, just inside Arkansas. Heron stayed in Elkhorn Tavern, and early the next morning, December 6th, Another courier from Blunt arrived. The man carried a message directing Heron to hurry forward all of his cavalry. Heron promptly detached Colonel Dudley Wickersham and a half-dozen regiments of horsemen. Wickersham rushed to Cane Hill and, and reached that place late that evening after a grueling twelve-hour ride, but part of his force fell behind and met with disaster, as we shall see. Just before Heron himself left Elkhorn Tavern on the 6th, he telegraphed Samuel Curtis in St. Louis, saying, Tomorrow we'll tell the story. May the God of battles be with us. 
December 6th was the most trying day of the march. The temperature at Elkhorn Tavern was 18 degrees when Heron set out. In spite of the frigid conditions, and despite blistered feet and aching muscles, the Missouri divisions marched steadily southward on Telegraph Road. Shortly after midnight on Sunday, December 7th, the dog-tired troops staggered into Fayetteville after a heroic march of nearly 50 miles. Only about half of Heron's soldiers were still on their feet by this point. An officer in the 20th Wisconsin remembered how, on the march from Elkhorn Tavern to Fayetteville, quote, the men began to fall by the wayside, the road was lined with them, end quote. The drain on manpower is illustrated by the experience of the 20th Iowa. The regiment set out with 27 officers and 615 men, but went into battle at Prairie Grove with only 23 officers and 270 men, an attrition rate of 54%. Other infantry regiments suffered similar losses from straggling. As best as can be determined, the Missouri divisions began the march on December 3rd with nearly 7,000 men, but only about half that number reached Prairie Grove in time for the battle on December 7th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor a revolutionary, and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change but it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Day after day, Blunt's Federals improved their defenses around Cane Hill and waited for Heron. All the while, skirmishing on Cove Creek Road increased in intensity as the Confederates drew closer. 
One Union soldier noted that, quote, there was considerable suspense and speculation as to which army would get to us first. The rebels were doing their best to win the race, but the steep climb over the Boston Mountains proved more difficult than Hindman had anticipated. The challenge posed by the primitive road was complicated by Cove Creek itself. The stream was out of its banks after recent rains, and it filled the narrow valley from side to side. Shoes disintegrated, ammunition was soaked, and equipment was lost in the ice-cold water. But on December 6th, the exhausted, waterlogged rebels finally reached Morrow's. That evening, Hyman met with his division commanders in John Morrow's house to review plans for the next day. Everyone was in good spirits. The operation was unfolding according to plan, and so it seemed possible, even probable, that within 24 hours, Blunt would be defeated and the road to Missouri would be wide open. But then a courier arrived with a startling message. Heron was marching to Blunt's support with a large force of cavalry, infantry, and artillery. In fact, the Federal column was nearing Fayetteville and would be in Cane Hill by noon the following day. Well, Hindman was thunderstruck by this unexpected news. It meant the plan to envelop Blunt now was unworkable. Because if Marmaduke continued north on Cove Creek Road with the Confederate cavalry, he would collide with Heron, and it seemed unlikely that Marmaduke's horsemen alone would be able to stop the approaching Union column. And if Shoup and Frost and the rebel infantry, as planned, drove toward Cane Hill on Van Buren Road, they would succeed only in pushing Blunt toward Heron and squashing Marmaduke in the process. A less determined man might have given up then and there and fallen back across the mountains, but Thomas Hyman refused to throw in the towel before he'd even taken a swipe at the Yankees. He later explained how, quote, to withdraw without fighting at all would discourage my own troops and so embolden the enemy as to ensure his following me up. There was a possibility that I might, by adopting a different plan, destroy the reinforcements, that is, Heron, and afterwards fight the main body, that is, Blunt, upon equal terms. Hindman believed that fortune favors the bold, and so he hesitated only a few moments before reaching a decision. As he later said, quote, I determined to risk an engagement. The hastily revised plan called for the Trans-Mississippi Army to keep Blunt and Heron apart and defeat each in detail, that is, separately. Therefore, instead of turning west at Morrow's, the infantry would follow the cavalry north to the junction with Fayetteville Road. At the junction, the Confederates would turn east and attack Heron with overwhelming force. Then, with Heron out of the picture, the rebels would reverse course and fall upon Blunt from the rear. The revised plan, though, contained several worrisome elements. The rebels would have to slip past Blunt without being detected and then fight two battles of uncertain duration with a limited supply of ammunition. They would also have to depend on Blunt remaining inactive at Cane Hill. If, however, Blunt realized what was happening and hurried to link up with Heron, then the Confederates would be caught between two converging Federal forces. And so stealth and speed were of utmost importance if Hindman's new plan was going to succeed. 
and so at three o'clock on the morning of Sunday, December 7th, 1862, the Confederates awoke and hurried north on Cove Creek Road, quote, without blast of bugles or beat of drums, end quote. A lone cavalry brigade remained behind on Van Buren Road to maintain the illusion that the main attack on Cane Hill would come from the south. The deception worked even better than Hindman had hoped, because the Union officer watching Cove Creek Road failed to notify Blunt that large numbers of rebels were on the move. It remains a mystery whether this breakdown in communications was because of incompetence or bad luck, but the result was that several critical hours passed before Blunt learned that the Confederates had gotten around his flank and into his rear. The junction of Cove Creek and Fayetteville Roads was located atop a forested hill surrounded by extensive grassland. Locals called the place Prairie Grove. As Marmaduke approached the junction in the gray light of dawn, he discovered that 1,200 Union cavalrymen were camped in the vicinity. These Yankee horsemen were part of the force that had been detached from the Missouri divisions the previous morning at Elkhorn Tavern. The Federals, 6th and 7th Missouri Cavalry and 1st Arkansas Cavalry were unable to keep up with Wickersham as he'd hurried to Cane Hill, and they'd stopped for the night in the vicinity of Prairie Grove so that men and horses could rest. Marmaduke struck them just as the sun appeared over the horizon. His two brigades of Missouri and Texas troopers, led by Colonels Joe Shelby and Emmett McDonald, fell upon the unsuspecting Yankees from two directions. A Confederate officer, Captain Salem Ford, didn't exaggerate by much when he likened the attack to a, quote, thunderbolt from a clear sky. Many of the rebel horsemen were dressed, whole or in part, in captured Union uniforms, which only added to the confusion. Ford recalled that, quote, We had a hand-to-hand fight that lasted about ten minutes. It was a hot and exciting battle. We were all mixed up, every fellow for himself, all dressed pretty much alike, except the hats were mostly of different style. Surprised and overwhelmed, the Union cavalrymen fled back toward Fayetteville with the Confederates in hot pursuit. The debacle cost the Federals about a quarter of the force engaged, or close to 300 men, most of them captured. Fewer than a dozen rebels were killed or wounded. As we said, Francis Heron reached Tracy's hometown of Fayetteville shortly after midnight on December 7th. After a brief rest, his troops set out on the final leg of their extraordinary march. The column was six miles west of town, and the sun was just rising in the eastern sky when Heron heard gunfire ahead. This was an unexpected development, since he'd assumed Fayetteville Road, in Blunt's rear, was in Union hands. Heron wondered whether the rebels could have bypassed Blunt and gained control of the road. Well, Heron had his answer a few minutes later, when hundreds of panicked Federal cavalrymen raced past. 
An infantryman in the 20th of Iowa recalled how, quote, shouts of, hold your hat, and rude jests were showered on them as they passed by, but failed to check their progress or even gain their attention. Indeed, Heron had trouble stopping the flight of the rattled Union horsemen. He later reported to Samuel Curtis that, quote, It was with very greatest difficulty that we got them checked, but after some hard talking and my finally shooting one cowardly whelp off his horse, they halted. Once order was restored, Heron pressed onward with a heightened sense of urgency. Two miles farther along, at Walnut Grove Church, the Missouri divisions encountered Marmaduke's rebel cavalry and forced them back without much difficulty. About 10 a.m., Heron reached a bluff overlooking the Illinois River. On the far side of the stream was a stretch of grassland known as Crawford's Prairie. Just beyond the grassland was an imposing hill crowned with a dense forest. The hill was Prairie Grove, and even from a distance, Heron could see rebel artillery batteries planted on the forward slope. What did that mean? Well, it meant that although Cane Hill was only six miles away, the Missouri divisions would never get there. Shoup's division, the leading Confederate infantry force, reached Fayetteville Road around 9 a.m. Shoup knew Heinemann wanted him to engage Heron's Federals as far to the east as possible, that is, as far away from Blunt at Cane Hill as possible. But from the top of Prairie Grove, he saw rebel cavalry falling back across the Illinois River and milling around on Crawford's Prairie. This was Marmaduke's horsemen being driven back by the vanguard of Heron's column. Moments later, Marmaduke found Shoup and reported that Heron was much closer than expected. In fact, the Missouri divisions were fast approaching the river. And so Shoup faced a difficult decision. Should he continue to advance and collide with Heron somewhere ahead, possibly in unfavorable terrain? Or should he establish a blocking position on the commanding high ground he now occupied and wait for Heron to come to him? Shoup was understandably reluctant to keep moving forward and engage a sizable enemy force on unfamiliar ground with the rain-swollen stream, that is, the Illinois River, at his back. So after a quick look around, he chose to stand fast at Prairie Grove and hold the high ground. Shoup deployed his 3,200 Arkansans east of the Fayetteville Road along the natural crest of the hill. Local residents referred to this area as the Ridge, while later generations would call it Battle Ridge. Colonel Dandridge McRae's 1,600-man brigade was on the left, near the road, while Brigadier General James Fagan's 1,600-man brigade was on the right, near Archibald Borden's farm. A short time later, Marmaduke's 2,000 cavalrymen formed on Fagan's right, extending the Confederate line across the Borden farm. When Heinemann arrived on the scene, he was dismayed to see Shoup's troops deploying for battle. He knew that to have any reasonable chance of success, the Confederates had to strike quickly and overwhelm Heron first, as far from Cane Hill as possible, then turn back and defeat Blunt. 
but Prairie Grove was only six miles from Cane Hill. By fighting at Prairie Grove, Hyman realized he would probably only have about two hours to deal with Heron, since two hours would be all the time Blunt would need to march from Cane Hill and reach the battlefield and pitch in. Hindman was uncertain his army could overwhelm Heron in just two hours. With a sinking heart, the Confederate commander realized that Shoup's decision to stop and fight at Prairie Grove, although correct given the immediate circumstances, it nevertheless changed everything. It meant that Hindman had lost the initiative and with it the ability to dictate the flow of events. In short, the Trans-Mississippi Army was now caught between a rock and a hard place. Anticipating Blunt's impending arrival on the scene, Hyman placed Frost Infantry Division across Fayetteville Road facing west toward Cane Hill. The 6,300 Arkansans, Missourians, and Texans formed a line behind a creek called Muddy Fork, about a mile southwest of Shoup's position atop Prairie Grove. Frost waited there, watching for Blunt and the Kansas Division to appear. Hindman established his headquarters midway between the two wings of his army at Prairie Grove Presbyterian Church, a stout log structure near the junction of Cove Creek and Fayetteville Roads. Perhaps he took some comfort in the knowledge that although a major wrench had been thrown into his plans, Prairie Grove was a good place to fight. The nature of the ground allowed him to engage Heron with half of his army and to hold off Blunt with the other half, while Cove Creek Road provided a secure line of retreat in case things went terribly wrong. And, with the ball about to open, as they say, that's where we're going to leave things for this week. We'd initially wanted to try and cover the run-up to the battle and the fighting itself in one episode, but that would have obviously ended up being a super long show, and I actually have to work this weekend. So, um, yeah, that's just not going to happen. So, sorry, you'll have to tune in next week for the continuation of the story. But hey, at least Tracy and her voice were back for the whole show this week. Yep. Yep. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Civil War Logistics, A Study of Military Transportation by Earl J. Hess. Last week, our book recommendation was of a more fun nature, I guess, since we really talked up the great photographs of Civil War battlefields in Gilbert's book. But this show's book recommendation is a bit more... um scholarly in nature. We've already recommended a handful of Earl Hess's other books on the podcast. In fact, we're big fans of pretty much everything he's written. And with this one, if you're interested at all in the nuts and bolts of logistics during the Civil War, that is the organization and coordination that was needed to move men, supplies, and equipment on a massive scale, then this is the book for you. Once again, that's Civil War Logistics, a study of military transportation by Earl J. Hess. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, 
which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Dudley Wickersham is kind of a funny name. (laughs) Well, I'm sure his parents didn't think so. Hmm. Good point. Well, here's a couple of other names that brought smiles to our faces, uh, although for a different reason. Uh, Steve and Stephen. Steve K. is the newest member of the Strawfoot Brigade, and Stephen A. made a donation to the podcast this past week. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next week, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.